As we get started this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 80. Uh, I just should remind you, or maybe maybe not remind you, maybe give you a warning is the better way to put it. Give you a warning. Uh, folks in Sunday school uh, said I was quite lively, and uh, so it may, I'm just in one of those moods this morning, so um, just be prepared. Um, in fact, somebody came up after Sunday school to check my coffee uh, to see what was in it. But anyway, um, as we get started this morning, we do so in Psalm 80, and um, this is the last of the laments. So we started this new Psalm series, and uh, we started, I believe, with Psalm 74, and we've worked our way up to Psalm 80, and this is the last of the laments in this section, quite frankly. Uh, this has been a challenging section of the Psalms for me. Uh, a lot of the Psalms that we've studied from Psalm 74 to Psalm 80 have been laments. Um, a lament is a, is a corporate expression of frustration or despondency or complaint of sorrow or of mourning. And um, I don't, my personality doesn't do well with prolonged periods of, of grief and darkness. And um, so this has been hard for me. You know, in some ways, if we were to take these songs and, 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 and put them in kind of the fashion of modern music, they, they would be in uh, song and, and played in a, low key, in a minor key. They would be in, they're introspective, they'd be bleak. They're, uh, it's, it's undertones of sorrow in these psalms. If I could use an example that I, I pray that you'll understand that the heart in which you are, the way in which I intend this to be used, it'd be like breakup songs. Um, there would be, you know, uh, some songs that just kind of suck the life out of you, but, but, but help you kind of process everything that you're going through. And some of you don't remember those days of having breakup songs, uh, praise God for that. But, um, if you were in that period, now some of y'all really like this kind of stuff. Some of y'all really like, um, depressing songs and negative songs and, and, and stuff like that. It, it reminds me kind of. Uh, there's a, a band uh, uh, that has taken a lot of Christian hymns, and I'm not going to mention Indelible Grace too much because some people get mad at me. Uh, but uh, this band has taken wonderfully joyful songs and rewritten them for the modern audience. And I've been to uh, Reform University Fellowship meetings on college campuses, and they just love singing this stuff. And I'm sitting there going, we're singing about the joy of the Lord, and I want to go out of here and just go cry a river somewhere. Like, why are we not singing about the glory and the majesty of God? Uh, we don't need to sing of God's glory in a minor key. Uh, that's a major key. Uh, holy, holy, holy is wonderful, primarily because of the way it's written and the way it is to be sung. But these psalms, not to get off course, these psalms that we've been studying, I think are very helpful. To us Now, this is the last of the Psalms, uh, Lament, that we will study. Next week, we'll finish up our Psalm series that guides us through the end of August, and we'll celebrate communion with a wonderfully celebrative or celebratory Psalm, Psalm 81. But these Psalms are very helpful, and the reason I think they're very helpful is that they give expression to our thoughts. At, at some point in our lives, whether we like it or not, we find ourselves kind of with need to lament, need to mourn, need to feel sorrowful, need to have someone or something to connect with, to understand that we're not alone. Uh, that's why we have, or when we were teenagers, you, may, you had slow and, and reflective breakup songs to help you process the emotions. 
They also bring tremendous theological clarity. So we, we've worked our way through some of these psalms, and, and they've helped us bring theological clarity. Last week we, we talked about how uh, we're asking God to, to, to deliver us, and we're, we're diving deeply into understanding that the circumstances oftentimes in our lives are a result of our own sin and how we need to turn and return to Christ. And, and so those are, are wonderfully helpful and clear songs, and they're also songs that I think help us view things properly, not just through an overly optimistic lens. And I'll be the first to admit, I have one of those overly optimistic lenses, uh, overly optimistic personalities. And sometimes if you were to talk to folks who are not blessed to live in America, uh, they will tell you Americans in general have an overly optimistic outlook on life. And so sometimes it's helpful for us to, to, to come to grips with the realities of the world around us. And so I think these psalms are incredibly helpful. Psalm 80 is one of those psalms, and it is helpful for us. I'm going to read it in just a moment. Before I do, I want you to to note kind of the breakdown of this psalm. The psalm is actually a song that is sung with a refrain. Verses 3, 7, and 19 are the refrain. So if I could just break the psalm down briefly, if you have it there before you. Verses 1 and 2 are like the first verse of the song. Then you have a refrain in the lyrical section. You have a refrain. And then verses 4 through 6, another verse, and then another refrain. Then verses 8 through 13, another verse. And then the refrain again in a sense, but you have a bridge after verse 13. Kind of that bridge to get you to that last refrain. And those are 14 through 18. And then the final refrain is verse 19. So with that said, let me read Psalm 80 to us. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned in the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with our people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine, that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land, the mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move on the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have put it and cut it down. And may they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, and the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this word. We pray that you'll help us to understand it this morning. It's emphasis on the restorative work of our shepherd and the boldness that we are to have before your presence. Help us, Father, to know and understand you more fully through this psalm, but also understand how we are to interact with you 
and begin to apply those things to our lives both now and forevermore. For it is in Christ we pray. Amen. So Psalm 80, there are two particular points that I want to make from Psalm 80 or draw out of Psalm 80 for us this morning in our time. Number one is the restorative work of our shepherd. The restorative work of our shepherd. Verse 1 says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And so we're going to talk about God being a shepherd. That's the dominant image of Psalm 80. Now our choir sang a wonderful rendition of uh, the king of heaven or the king of glory, my shepherd is. Uh, what a beautiful psalm and what a beautiful song, take, a take off of Psalm 23. And we understand God as a shepherd. Jesus uses that language. David was a shepherd. Jesus, the great son of David, is a shepherd of the sheep. And we're going to talk about that shepherd, his work, and the restorative nature of that work in the lives of God's people and our lives this morning. And then we're also going to look at the boldness that God requires or desires, maybe is the better way to put it, God desires from us. Uh, when we come to him in prayer. So the restorative work of the shepherd and the boldness that God desires for us when we come to him in prayer. So let's get started uh, thinking about the restorative work of the shepherd that are in this, that, that's in this psalm. Let me go to verse 1 as I've already read, but let me read verses 1 through 2 again, maybe 3 as well. Just by way of uh, reminding us and connecting us back to the text so that as we learn from it, We'll know where we are pulling this information from. Verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. In these two verses that form the verse of the song, in this first kind of statement of the refrain, we see God being referred to as a shepherd, and there are three particular things the shepherd does. God as our shepherd does in our lives, or we see God doing in the lives of his people. Verse 1 tells us he is one who leads his people like a flock. The shepherd leads his people like a flock. Now, it's important. This is not something that should be unfamiliar to many of us, but though some of us it may be, when God is referred to as a shepherd... Uh, the biblical image of a shepherd is the image of a shepherd leading his flock. Jesus in John chapter 10 refers to himself as the good shepherd, the door to the sheep. The good shepherd is the one who leads his flock. And Jesus continues that in that imagery saying, I call my sheep by name. They know my voice. I know their name and they follow me. The image of Psalm 23, many of us at least have heard that psalm. If we're not devout, devout Christians, maybe we've even heard that psalm. And we know that it says, thou leadest me. Thou walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. The shepherd is leading us to green pastures. He's leading us beside still waters. He is leading us through the valley of the shadow of death. And so the idea of the shepherd in the Bible is not one who drives the sheep from behind, but rather one who leads the sheep from the front. And the sheep have a familiarity with the shepherd's voice. And they follow the shepherd. The shepherd lives with the sheep. The sheep lie down beside the shepherd. Jesus says, I'm this door to the pen. The pen was a rock wall where the shepherd slept in the door to keep harm out and keep sheep in safely. 
The shepherd was intimately connected to his sheep. And in this particular psalm, we see that image coming to the foreground again. God is the one who leads his church. God is the one who leads his people. God is the one who leads your life in accordance with his perfect and holy will. Nothing you and I confront will be anything that God has not already confronted on our behalf as he leads us through the valleys of the shadow of death. And so what we have the psalmist saying here in this lament, uh, lament is, a, is, a, is an acknowledgement that God is a shepherd who leads his people. God is a shepherd who cares for his sheep, his sheep and calls them by name. You are known by God. I am known by God. We are known by God. And he leads us in his grace. There's this idea of, of kingship, a king who leads, one in charge. It's also the, the psalmist says the shepherd not only leads, but he also is enthroned on the cherubim. So we see that he shines forth from the throne. Verse 1b says, you are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Now, to understand this fully, we have to understand the way in which God is depicted in the book of Exodus as sitting on the mercy seat is called in the book of Exodus on top of the Ark of the Covenant. God has that Ark of the Covenant that is representative of his dwelling on earth among his people. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, you may be familiar with that concept, but the Ark of the Covenant, right, was a, a wooden box that was built and God instructed Moses, who then instructed the craftsmen how to build the box in, in a specific way, and there were two angelic cherubim figures on each end that were facing one another on the top on the lid. And between those two cherubim was what was called the mercy seat. It was the idea that this is God's seat among his people. And the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies in the middle of the tabernacle, which was representative that God is dwelling with his people. And so when the psalmist is using this language, he's referring to God sitting on his throne, God sitting present with his people, God shining forth brightly in his majesty and his wonder, in all of his arraignment, and all of his grace, and all of his, his, his splendor. He's saying, shine forth from your throne. So we have a king who leads his people. We also have a king who's always present with his people, in a sense a priest, who is always there to represent him before his people. You know God is with you. You and I need to know that this morning. God is with us. Our shepherd is always with us. The Lord Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep, the king of creation, leads from the front, shines forth from his throne and his presence among you and upon me and among us as his people. It's a beautiful image. Beautiful image. Psalmist is understanding that. Our shepherd. But our shepherd doesn't just lead. Our shepherd doesn't just stay with us. Our shepherd saves us. Verse 2, he says, Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come and save us. Verse 3, restore us, O God, and let your face shine that we may be saved. The idea here is the idea of being saved from danger. Now, Unfortunately, the idea of being saved and salvation oftentimes becomes commonplace in Christian language, especially the language of evangelical Christians. We think of it in terms of being saved eternally to eternal life. We don't think about it in the context of being saved from something. 
When the psalmist is using the word save here, he's saying save us from the challenging circumstances in which we live. Now he lists a variety of them. I'll just point them out to you in the psalm. And we see them coming to the foreground in the psalm in verses 5 and 6, kind of the consequences of their action. He says, save us from uh, being fed with the bread of our tears, from the despondency of our lives, from the depression that has come to us as a result of the, uh, the contention of the neighbors, verse 6, and the, the laughter, the mocking that comes from our enemies. You know, one of the great lies that I was told as a children by the world in which we live, I'm thankful we don't tell our children this anymore, but sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Uh, Words hurt more than sticks and stones ever thought about hurting. Words stick with you. Words uh, impact you long term. And some of us are, even in our adult years, even in our older adult years, still dealing with the fallout of words that were spoken to us and over us when we were teenagers or even younger. And the psalmist says we are despondent and depressed because our neighbors are making fun of us. Our neighbors are laughing at us. They're mocking us. Our tears are what we drink, the bread that sustains us. He also talks about here in verses 12 and 13 in a more specific way that, that the walls of the city of Jerusalem and the walls of the, of the cities in the land have been broken down. Everyone who passes along the way through the, the land of God's people uh, has opportunity to pluck from them. They are exposed. They are taken advantage of. They are oppressed. They are kept down. They, were, they are in a heap of trouble. And then verse 13 says, the boar ravages the land from the forest and all that move on the field feed on it. It's a reference to the boar, the pigs. What's a pig? A Gentile. The Gentile nations are coming in and, and ravaging the people of God. Save us from this circumstance. And then he continues on as he brings us to a conclusion. In verse 16 he says, they have burned it, the city, the land, with fire. They have cut it down. They have utterly destroyed the land. It lies in utter ruins. Save us, God. You know, the word save, as I said a moment ago, unfortunately has become commonplace, and even we've lost some of the effect of it because we use it so often, and we've become so familiar with it. But the idea of saving us from circumstances has to do with the extremity of those circumstances, the extremity of the situation. So think with me, if you will, a mother and her son. I use son because sons tend to do this stuff more than mothers, especially when they're little. A mother and her son hanging out by a lake. Doc goes out on the lake. Mother's standing there with her son. She puts a life jacket or a swimming on the son and lets the son run free. Feel, you know, obviously watching out for the son, making sure the son doesn't fall in the water. But if he does, she's not overly stressed because he's got the life jacket on, got the swimmy on. And so she's got a relative amount of peace about the situation. I say relative because women in those situations, mothers are never at peace. Dads, oftentimes we don't even know where the children are. But in that moment, the mother knows and she's got a relative amount of peace because the life jacket's on. Now imagine the scenario 
Or the mother's hanging out on the dock with the child without the life jacket on. Now she's terrified. She's worried to death. Now imagine the scenario when the child walks away from the mother and the mother says, hey, come back here, come back, don't go into the water, don't go too close, come back, come back. The child refuses to listen. And then the child falls into the water. The child can't swim. And the mother doesn't care what she's wearing, doesn't care what's in her hands, she doesn't care who she's talking to, she's in the water, saving the child from drowning. Now we don't say the mother saved the child by putting the life jacket on the child. We say that's responsible. We say that's good wisdom. But when the child falls in the water without the life jacket on, she's in the water, we say she saved the child. What's the difference? The extremity of the circumstance. That child's in the water. That child's about to drown. That mother's jumping in. And when the psalmist is writing of God saving his people, he's talking about the extremity of that circumstance. It is so drastic. He needs, they need to be saved. The child in the water needs to be saved by someone who will jump into the water and help them in the midst of the mess that he or she has got themselves into so that he can then have life. If not, the life will be taken from him. And so the psalmist is saying, oh God, come down in the midst of our circumstances, come in the midst of our extreme circumstances and and help us. Here's the crazy thing about this psalm. It's one thing to look at the despondency, the way in which they're treated by their neighbors, and the depression that these people would face as a result of their cities, and a result of their farmland, as a result of their homeland being laid in ruins. But man, those circumstances are horrible. God needs to step in, and God needs to restore the land. God needs to help these people out. We can certainly understand that. Maybe we've got situations like that in our own lives. But the emphasis of Psalm 80 is not on the circumstance. Rather, the emphasis on, on, of Psalm 80 is on how they got themselves into the mess. Because the refrain says, restore us, O God. Three times. Verse 3, verse 7, verse 19. But then verse 14 says, turn again, O God of hosts. The image is God has turned from his people and he's no longer watching his people. We know God hasn't turned from his people. But in the original language, the two words restore and turn again are virtually the same. What is the psalmist's point? What's being communicated to us? Well, God hasn't turned away from his people. Any more than God's turned away from you and God's turned away from me. What's happened to the people of God in Psalm 80 And what's happened to us oftentimes is put back to that mother and that child, that mother saying, hey, 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 come back, turn around, don't go to the water, come here now. And that child refusing to listen to that mother and that child determined he's going to go walk into that water because he does not want to listen to that mother's voice of warning. And she gets loud and she gets loud and everybody around is like, my goodness, settle down. And she's like, he's going into the water. 
And she's trying to catch his attention, but he won't listen. He's determined he's going to go into that water. And that's what Israel has done. God, time and time again throughout our history, turn around. Don't go into that water. Don't go off the edge of that dock. You can't swim. You will drown. Don't do it. And she kept on and kept on and kept on and kept on. And the prayer of Psalm 80, the emphasis of Psalm 80 is basically, God, save us from ourselves. We can look around ourselves and see all kinds of circumstances and we can look at them and say these are things that are happening. But ultimately we are putting ourselves over and over and over again into the place of danger. So if we were making this prayer and writing and singing this prayer in the modern day church, we may say God save us from ourselves and our quote commitment to intellectual relativism. Everything is relative. No absolute truth. Everything is relative. And that's not just a problem outside the church. It's as much a problem in our lives because it's one of those things that has, has seeped into all of our minds as we live in the liberalized West. And I don't mean liberalized in a bad sense there. An open West. Relativism is seeking in and we're committed to intellectual relativism. There's no such thing as truth. My truth is different than your truth or our truth is different than some other cultural group's truth. Maybe the church needs to cry out, God, save us from ourselves. Save us from our commitment to intellectual relativism. There is an absolute truth that's found in your word. Maybe it would be, God, save us from our infatuation with ourselves. We, we make decisions based upon how it affects me. We justify what we do based upon how we feel. Again, that's not a problem for younger generations only. That's not a problem for those outside the church. That's a problem for every one of us. Again, we live in a time of rugged individualism that's driven by the undercurrent of narcissism. We are obsessed with ourselves. Maybe we say, God, save us from our desire to make all our determinations based upon ourselves and how we're impacted and what it means for us and how we feel about it. Maybe we would say, God, save ourselves from our religious complacency. We are complacent with our religion. Just give me some things to do and I'll do them and I'll feel good about it. And I'm quite happy. I don't really want to dive too deeply in that relationship. I don't want to really do too much. I'm quite happy being where I am. We are complacent in our religiosity. Again, not a problem just for those outside. That's a problem for all of us. We've got to fight against it. Maybe God save us from that. God's warning us, turn around, turn around, turn around. And here we keep on walking. Or maybe it's the reinterpretation of the gospel of God's holy word and love for his people in terms of social activism. That's not just a problem for churches who, quote, identify themselves as progressive Christian churches. We all can fall into the temptation of thinking the gospel is simply social activism, socially to be applied. I heard from a, a group of Christians who would certainly identify themselves as evangelicals this week, that the principal reason, this is what they said, the principal reason you come to church is to find a community that loves you. No, 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 no. 
The principal reason you come to church is to worship the glorious God who is, who was, and who will forever be. And to enjoy him, the community that loves you, as a byproduct of your worship of God and you're giving your life to him. Maybe we say, God, help us. God, help us and turn us around. Which brings us to the last thing. This is why the prayer is so powerful and the prayer is so wonderful. It's bold. It's bold. The, the, the restorative work of the shepherd, he restores his people. He saves them. He leads them. He shines forth from his throne. But they understand their circumstances. So they're saying, God, restore us. In a sense, he's saying, God, turn us back to you. You know, here's the thing. The prayer of verse 14, turn again, O God, to us. I think our experience is that God's turned away from us. That's the way we feel. But, but, but God being God means he, he doesn't turn to you. You don't tell God what to do. It, it's return us back to you. Back to our child walking down the ramp to the water at the dock. The mother crying out, stop, stop, stop. And then she knows what could happen. So she walks or runs to the child and grabs the child turns the child around, away from the danger, back to that which is safe. And so the prayer is, God, save us from ourselves, turn us back to you, and it's bold. Five times in the first three verses, we're told that the prayer is command. God, give ear, shine forth, stir up, come save restore this is beautiful the psalmist and the people of God singing of the intimacy with which they have and the relationship with which they have with God our children get me some milk what did you say to me God didn't say that though this is the beauty of it right when my children say daddy get me some milk I said, what'd you say to me? I said, give me some milk. I said, what'd you say to me? I said, give me some milk. I said, okay, try that again. But God didn't do that. God, God wants us to be bold. He doesn't want to be disrespectful, but he wants us to be bold. We're not coming as applicants saying, God, would you please, if it is okay, would you please do this? And I'm going to be as 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 gentle as I can be and as, as this, that, and the other to try to win your favor. God says, no, I've given you my favor in Jesus. I love you. I've made you my child. I want you to come with boldness before the throne of mercy and grace because you come in Christ. And so the prayer for us, restore us, O oh God. Shine forth your light. Lead us. Give ear to our prayers. Shine forth, stir up your might, save us, turn us back to you so that we might be saved. God desires boldness from his people. May we go forward knowing that this king of love, my shepherd, is so wonderful and gracious that he is willing to save us from ourselves and the decisions we make and turn us back to him. May we boldly plead for that. May we boldly plead to walk in righteousness. May we boldly plead
to know him in full. May we boldly plea for him to restore us in his grace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.